Welcome to the Sunrise Podcast, powered by Sunrise Labs. Hello and welcome to Making Bright Ideas Work, a podcast by Sunrise Labs. I'm your host today, Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. Today's podcast is going to cover the topic of user-centered design strategies for moving medical devices into the home and the pocket. And we're going to discuss why this is important, what the term user-centered approach means, and what advantages this approach offers. Plus, we'll talk about what this means in the context of meeting FDA expectations. And I have two fantastic guests who are joining me for this conversation today. First and Foremost, we have Alex Terrian. He is the Director of User-Centered Design at Sunrise Labs. Alex, thank you so much for joining me. It's great to be here today, Tyler. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's fabulous to have you. And then also on the line, we have Kelly Catali. She is the Principal Human Factors Engineer for Sunrise Labs. Kelly, thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to get a chance to talk to you guys about this because uh, this is a really fascinating topic to me. And um, just as I've learned more about it, I've become more and more interested in the way that Sunrise Labs approaches this topic. So let's start off here. Why does this topic matter today? It's been a long running trend for healthcare to be moving from the clinical spaces into more personal spaces like the home. But it's it's been accelerating over the last, you know, call it 10 years on an exponential curve, and especially with the introduction of smartphones, um, it's actually moved into the pocket and onto the person. Kelly, is there anything you want to add to uh, to Alex's points there just on, on why this topic is so relevant today? FDA actually recently released some guidance, some guidance to industry about uh, providing the ability to expand capabilities for non-invasive remote monitoring devices to help with bringing some of that technology into the home so that we can limit healthcare provider contact and potential exposure to COVID-19. So it is really prevalent and getting a lot of traction today, as opposed to uh, previously, even last year, that wasn't necessarily a driving force. Mm. Absolutely. So we, we talked in the in, in the introduction that we were going to talk a little bit more about user-centered approach. So can you define user-centered approach and what do you mean when you use that term? What it means is really trying to start from understanding needs of patients and needs of the end users, as opposed to even starting with a technology or really a, a business strategy. If you can start from the standpoint of understanding where they're coming from as a patient or a user, you have empathy. You, you're able to start thinking in their shoes. You're going to actually be more successful at trying to get them to understand what the value of your technology is, what the value is of your business strategy and why it matters to them and how it's going to help them to be successful in managing their health and possibly uh, an ongoing chronic condition. We find that it's, it's an important area to balance as you know, the marketers and the strategic business people at our clients are really focused on where they can go next to, to be successful as a company. And our coworkers in the technology space and what is possible from a technology standpoint, this part helps to balance both of those major influences in the development of a product to make sure that it stays relevant and it's likely to be adopted. And in the past, technology has been the driving factor for projects. And it's important for us to keep in mind that our our frontier, our biggest frontier now is really surrounding the use of the product because we are getting to the point in our technology capabilities that we are refined enough 
that really the, the biggest uh, opportunities for improvement are the ways that our users interact with our products. So it's, it's really important to consider that, as what Alex was mentioning, this considering the patient, considering the end users of the products. And at Sunrise, we have a team of three disciplines. We have industrial designers who focus mainly on the hardware design and what you might consider to be sort of those what do you call it, Alex? The the concept sketches of the the cool cars. I know yeah. in my mind that's what I think <laughs> of uh, when you see car commercials and they have those sketches that um, look sleek and modern. That's what you could consider industrial design for cars. And there's that same level of care in the medical device realm as well. Then there's UX UI designers who work mainly in the software realm on designing screens and workflows and interaction models and, and strategy for interacting with a product. And then human factors engineering, which is mainly research-based and really characterizing the way that a user would interact and, and help shape the inputs to the design of the product. And our team really does a great job of coordinating and collaborating all three of these disciplines, which makes us unique in, in our realm because often you'll find houses that have one of these disciplines and they're experts at one of them. And we can offer that collaborative approach that really brings the three into alignment and harmony to create a user-centered mindset to our design team, which includes all of the, the mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, software engineers as well. We bring that focus to the user, which is uh, really key when we're talking about bringing technology into the home. And I, I really like the way that you, you describe that. As I think about it, it's really around that tight integration model between the folks shaping the user experience of, of interfaces you know, in the digital realm and the hardware-focused user experience in the industrial design realm and really the, the intelligence gathering and the user requirements, user needs definition from the human factors engineering side of, of our team. And when they all work together and have a strong cross-functional understanding of each other, that's really where the magic of what the user-centered team at Sunrise brings to the table. And we're really excited about how we're, we're interoperating there because it makes sure that all of those disciplines are considered as we're going through. It's it's a holistic approach. It's a it's a thoughtful systems based approach, and it ensures that um, there's a lot less gaps between uh, these disciplines where things can kind of fall in and be less than the the great experience that we're trying to shape for our end users. Excellent, excellent. Well, so kind of talk me through the advantages and, and what you've seen when it comes to uh, to using uh, the user centered approach. Really, it comes down to two big buckets for us. There's there's business success um, by helping our clients to understand how to reach patients and improve patient adoption and patient adherence. If we can help patients be successful with managing their healthcare and to find uh, health improvements through the use of design, patient experience, and through uh, you know being more user centered and understanding their experiences, we're gonna be helping the patients to be successful, which in turn helps the payers to justify why this new therapy might be out there. The other part is the regulatory success. The FDA has some pretty specific expectations about how we're managing patient risk or user risk 
with the medical devices that we produce. And if we're not understanding the context of use, if we're not really invested in trying to help improve those areas where, where risk might occur from the misuse of a device, from the misunderstanding of the device, we're not going to be successful. And as people move into this new um, accelerated frontier of, of personalized medicine, there's a lot of opportunity because there's a lot less control of those personal health spaces. So Alex, you mentioned business success, and I think this is really critical for any product. What we see the success as is patient adherence. And it's adherence to using the product in the way that you expect it to be used as a medical device developer. And our job as device developers is to introduce or maybe modify a behavior in a patient's existing lifestyle. So they live a certain way, they have certain patterns and routines, and this new product might be a disruption in some way. And if your patients don't stick with their therapy, then they won't have the outcome that they desire and that you desire as the developer. And if they aren't having that that improved health outcome, then payers don't want to reimburse for your product because they see it as ineffective. And that's really a critical systems level of thinking for the whole the holistic problem that you're trying to solve, right? So we're not just thinking about, let's shove this product into a patient's face and tell them they need to use it. And it's going to make their life better. Because if it doesn't meet them where they are, then it's effectively a brick that they can't use. So we see it as this, this entire approach to be critical for business success, because at the end of the day, you want people to be delighted by the use of your product and want to keep coming back to use it, especially when you're talking about improving medical conditions that ultimately improve the well-being of your patient. I, I love that you talked about that rational kind of way of thinking about it. If, if I'm showing you that this is good for you, why aren't you just taking it? And that's actually a kind of a, an interesting transition for us to, to kind of think about empathy. You know, if, if we talk about you know, business success, there's, there's really three areas of what helps us get there. You know, one is empathy and it's, it's making sure that we have the patient in mind. We've, we've kind of touched on that already. Um, Systems thinking is, is the next part starting to think about the whole continuum of the way healthcare is being delivered and, you know, it's influences on adoption and, you know, you know, patients and success. And really, is it designed well? You know, if it's not well executed, the patient who adopts it is going to end up, you know, ejecting out because they're frustrated by the experience. It's not helping them to get there. You know, it's it's these three pillars within, you know, business success that we try and focus on as a cross-functional team to make sure that, you know, from a human factors engineering standpoint, we're, we're getting the best understanding of the patient journey. And the best understanding of how the users and healthcare practitioners are, are operating in the space to build that understanding and that empathy. And then to draw that out into a fuller picture of the systems thinking about how all these components of the overall healthcare system, everything from you know, the immediate focus of the patient all the way out to, you know, how is how is this coming through into the pharmacy? How is this coming through the doctor's office? How is this getting to the end patient so that we can make sure that we're eliminating friction within the system and then executing it well? And all aspects of the team, the designers, the the human factors researchers are all 
critical at each step of these, these three parts of the process. What types of tools and methods do you use to ensure that you are successfully grasping exactly the, the, the point of view that a, a, a consumer is going to have once they utilize the product? Does that make sense? How can you fully get inside the, um, the mind and the, the behaviors of a, a particular individual to ensure that this really does kind of fit that, um, that model that you've held up for patient adherence? Does that make sense? Definitely. One of the key tools that we use for learning more about our patients and their lifestyle is actually what we call primary research. And it includes interviews and uh, potentially observations. So we would interview our end users. So we might go and work with a research house uh, to recruit a set of patients who have the condition or who are representative users of the product that we're hoping to develop. And we'll sit down and talk with them. We'll ask them, what what do you do normally during the day? What is your life like? What products do you already use? What's your familiarity with mobile devices? How comfortable are you with them? There's all kinds of questions that we can ask to really get our sense of how can we meet them where they are? Where where are they? Where do we have to meet them? And the the key is to really understand, okay, we're working with, especially when we're talking about bringing medical device technology into the home, we're working with people who might not have the same level of education or training as a user in the clinical environment mm-hmm. who has really specific training for using a certain product or understanding the science behind it or the physiology in the treatment. We will also do research through literature searches and other ways, maybe conferences or whatnot, to understand our users and the condition that we're hoping to address. So there might be comorbidities or parallel symptoms with patients who have certain diseases that are typically common. And so we need to make sure that, you know, say we're talking about MS patients, than multiple sclerosis, that is, there is typically associated mental, cognitive issues where it might be harder to think through higher level decision-making processes. And so we don't want to put something in front of a user who has MS that requires them to make really complex decisions because then we're introducing a potential point of failure. So we use, I would say, primary research to interview and maybe observe people using existing products to understand any workarounds they might have or any feedback they might have on things that they already currently use. Mm -hmm. And then we might use research in more of a literature search way to understand the disease state or condition more fully so that we can grasp what limitations or abilities we will have to meet when we design the product. And I'd like to add into that because I think so much of what Kelly's talking about is this immersion process is trying to learn about how the patients that we're trying to serve or the end users that we're trying to help, how they view the world and what their, what their realities are like. Um, we can't see the world through their eyes. That's, you know, they're unique individuals, but we can try and learn from them about how they see, how they see things. And it's it's funny how the small things are really important. 
So as you as you're building empathy, type two diabetes is a space that I've I've worked in for a little bit. And you know, if you think about it, there's a lot of pressure and shame that can be applied to people who are in that that you know a chronic condition, you know, where healthcare practitioners doing their best to try and intervene may have used, you know, carrot and stick threat and and you know and soothe kind of approaches to uh, trying to get people to adopt new exercise or diet regimes that may help to delay or avoid the onset of, of such a chronic condition. But it doesn't always work. And if you think about it, you know, constantly being reminded of your, your health condition every time you do a basic lifelong activity like eating, that's got to take a lot out of you on sure. a daily basis. Yeah. Having to manage you know, every time you need to sit down and at a, at a point in your life where you want to be relating to people, you know, a meal is sort of a common communal event where you get to, you know, engage with people. It's typically a de-stressing kind of environment. You're having to think about, like, I have to take a blood glucose reading. I have to time my insulin delivery for when my food arrives so that I have the uptake of my medication at the right time. All of that is just forcing them to be, you know, if I was to use, you know, Alex as a person versus Alex as a, you know, or a diabetes patient named Alex, those are two very different ways of looking at the world. And one has me probably getting emotional reserves added back in because I'm a person who is just active in the world. I have, you know, communal relationships. The other one is I'm constantly being reminded of my health condition. And it's sapping my resolve and weakens whatever emotional reserves I have to be successful adopting the behaviors. Really, patients want to feel like a person. They don't want to be defined by their health condition. Mm -hmm. And, you know, anything that we can do to help support that is really what is going to lead us to be successful. When you take these these various data points um, that you guys have pointed out that you use that you combine um, when you're you're using and utilizing the user centered approach, it, it really also drives home the the need for those three areas, like what you talked about when it came to industrial designers, UX UI designers, and then human factor engineers, just to be able to take all of those data points and put them together into something that that makes sense for the user and really fits what their needs are. And I want to piggyback on something that we've mentioned a couple of times. So we use the phrase device and we say the system. And I think there is an important distinction that needs to be made, which is the system. A lot of people think, oh, the system is the product, right? So we have, you know, if we're talking about a monitoring device, then you might have some subsystems, some, you know, software, maybe some hardware electrical components and the interface, maybe it's a touch screen or whatnot. And then people say, that's the system. And when we take a user-centered approach, we actually have to consider everything that the user interacts with. And this is another piece of that systems thinking, which every piece that the user interacts with also includes uh, potential packaging. So if the product comes in a package, what kind of labeling are you putting on it? Mm. How is it conveying the intent of the product? Uh, does it come with instructions? Does it come with training? That's a really, really important piece when it comes to designing a product for home use. We, I mentioned earlier about how users of medical products historically have had significant training, you know, doctors, nurses, they're well prepared to 
administer treatment, to monitor patients' conditions, and understand what the data that's coming out of the product is actually telling them. Now, when we bring products into the home, we really have to understand that lay people, as we we call them lay people, there are people who could have training. They might not have training. They might have a degree, a college degree. They might have only, you might have finished sixth grade, right? We don't Mm -hmm. know. And we have to meet them at whatever level of education and background that they have. And training can be a really important part of the system as a whole that can make or break a product. And we've seen that there have been some really creative ways to design training. We've seen online training is a really big trend now where you might offer a video to help your users understand your product and use it effectively alongside the video. Mm -hmm. You might have training embedded within your system. Or you might even offer uh, some augmented reality that can actually help deliver training through maybe a smartphone. If you already have a product in your hands that you use every day, why not integrate some way to offer a more realistic experience with interacting with the product And I know that that's something that's in a frontier that is uh, really waiting to be explored a bit more. And we see this as, you know, uh, learning opportunities are really important for interacting with the product and the system as a whole. So taking that systems level approach uh, does consider all of those components that impact the use of the product. And I think it's important to keep that in mind because oftentimes there's this heavy, heavy focus on let's, you know, characterize risk for using the system and what can go wrong. Um, But often the training comes at the end, right? It's it's a oh no, we we need to develop a you know some sort of plan for training or some instructions for using it because we need to prove that we have instructions, right? It's usually an expectation that you'll have something to inform your users. Um, so we keep that in mind throughout the the product development process as well. Technology and mechanisms and software are are so much more predictable. It isn't to say that they're they aren't complicated on their own, but they're they're predictable in a lot of ways. And the human beings, you know, there there is an approach that people will figure is rational. And then there's a lot of times what you'll see out there in the marketplace, what goes on with with the use of medical devices, and it's completely unpredictable. So when you get down to training, it can be often confusing and baffling to some of our counterparts that it's it's easier to focus on the knowns and right we really do believe that there's such an opportunity for our clients to have better outcomes related to training and related to you know the intent if if they're able to bring that into the product and you know as as Kelly was suggesting there's some great opportunities for starting to embed that you know, into the into the interface and in, in the way that you've made it core to the product. You know, augmented reality is an element of a system. There's great ways to simulate the experience of a product safely and with the kind of coaching that a device, medical device developer would want to have their patients go through. And you can kind of curate the way that they're learning. And it follows good adult learning principles, you know, that that kind of experiential learning where you can play and experiment and, you know, have sort of a safe sandbox in which to do it. You know, we're, we're very big advocates for, for thinking non-traditionally about 
you know, how an IF instructions for use is presented. I'm sorry, I almost went three letter acronym there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the ability to think about training in a more predictable fashion. And in that initial question, when we talked about the advantages that that uh, user-centered design approach um, offered, you mentioned business success through patient adherence, but also regulatory success through meeting FDA expectations. So let's talk through that FDA aspect as well. So what does it mean to take a user-centered approach to meeting FDA expectations? So from a regulatory standpoint, we consider FDA and any other regulatory body that our clients are going to be seeking approval from as the first customer. So we consider them to be the first line of the interaction within your product. And they may now be using it for actual treatment or monitoring, but they need to understand just as any of your future customers who are actually using your product, how the product is used and what the intent of your system is. And is it safe and effective? That's the real key question that gets asked when you're seeking approval. And from our eyes, taking a user-centered approach means having a strategy that really addresses your users and anticipates the project and also product risks that you will be facing when uh, using the product or that the end users will be facing. I, I love where you started there. That's it's it's a really great point that they're our first client and our customer, I should say. And it's funny because if you think about it from a big picture standpoint, we we've talked a bit about business success. And the, the core of the business success is are the patients going to be seeing an improvement in their healthcare condition? Like are they going to be able to notice that? That's something we all want. Mm -hmm. Are the payers going to be able to measure that? Is it just a 1% improvement in the overall population health uh, that they monitor and, and, you know, try and manage financially against that? Or is it, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40% improvement in the overall population health? A dramatically successful product is what all of those influencers on the success of a medical device want to see out of what is being brought to market. If you think about it, the FDA is asking a lot of the same questions. They just have to anchor it in in safe and effective use. They want to see a lot of the things that they ask us to do are just good design practice. Think about the context of use. Think about and get to know it. Don't just treat it generically. Really embed and build the empathy of what the patient experiences so that you can anticipate how there might be a problem. Just thinking of a, a user population as a single monolithic group as opposed to a variety of people with a variety of educations, a variety of economic circumstances, a variety of cultural influences, all of those things matter. And it's going to help you to speak intelligently about where risk lives within your system and lead the conversation with the agency so that they can see that you have really done the time to get to know where your product's going to be used, anticipated that in the design of it, and mitigated the risk from a use-related circumstance. A good point on this is, you know, I've worked on peritoneal dialysis devices in my past, which is a fancy way of saying, you know, a bionic kidney that you use at home. And you work on this, it's, it's you know, a pump that delivers fluid into the body, it's warmed and you, you think about the risks associated with that. Am I hitting the right button? Am I hitting the right numbers to enter this, to run my therapy? Am I hooking everything up correctly? Right. Am I 
keeping hygiene, right? Who would have thought that you have to worry about a cat? You know, <laughs> if it's a warm, soft fluid bag sitting on top of a, a heater bed, it turns out, you know, by looking into what's gone on over, you know, years of use of this product in the home, you know, pets like to go and fall asleep on something warm and soft like that. And it can create a risk of infection. It can create a risk of damage to the dialysis bag. You know, there's there's a lot of issues that could come out of that. And that's not something that you're going to find out just from going, well, it's a high school educated, you know, general person who does, you know, these kind of things with the device. And it's in a somewhat well-lit home, you know, the the basics of what you could understand about where that's going on. You have to spend some time there to figure out cat damage. And is it, you know, a high-risk item? Actually, it turns out it is. Is mm-hmm. it a high-frequency? Well, a lot of people in the United States at least own pets. Sure. You know, and these are, these are considerations that, you know, have surprised me at different points in my career, but they certainly are relevant and they matter. And, you know, I share that one just to be silly, but, you know, there's a lot more depth in there than a lot of a lot of people can assume. And to take it back to your original question, Tyler, asking about a user-centered approach from meeting FDA expectations, you know, we, we believe that just as any product needs to meet the user where they are, every project has their own, has its own trajectory as well and has its own level of investment and effort into human factors engineering. And we mentioned the three disciplines to our user-centered design team. Um, When it comes to regulatory documentation and proof of safe and effective use, the human factors engineering side is, is really the most prevalent from that end for providing evidence. And we have seen that not every project needs this this full-blown human factors engineering effort. And so taking an approach of understanding where would we advise our clients to focus their effort? Mm -hmm. How do we develop a strategy that is clear and allows the freedom to, to innovate while also making sure that you're you're creating a system that is safe and effective for your end users. And so we've actually seen several projects where the role was to, our role was to advise on what kind of changes. If you have a system already on the market and you want to have a generation two of your system, okay, well, what can you change without triggering the need for a significant body of work or body of evidence to prove that all those changes uh, from a human factor standpoint don't impact the safety and effectiveness of use. So we've had some you know, great discussions with FDA on defining a plan and a strategy to make sure that the approach from a human factor standpoint is robust and comprehensive enough while also allowing the, the freedom to focus budget and, and really energy from the development team's standpoint in the areas that matter most. It really does help when you have that, that kind of upfront strategy and mm-hmm. plan that you've developed in partnership with, with our clients that we can make the process quite a bit more predictable in terms of where we're focused, where we we have to tailor our efforts and where we invest the most. And, you know, Kelly is is spot on with, you know, being strategic with the application of human factors. You know, some of our clients don't really understand that you don't have to do a full-blown human factors evaluation with 
research with you know end users, if you scale the product such that you're not changing the interface in a way that is going to impact the safe and effective use of it, you can eliminate that scope from the project as opposed to you know advise on how to design the product better to make sure that you're not triggering you know risk in in the execution of it. Absolutely. And is there is there an element of this uh, of the FDA uh, approval process where, you know, as you strive to meet their expectations that there is a clear story that you're trying to tell about the product where you can show, hey, this is what it is, this is how it works and, and that sort of thing is is storytelling kind of part of this? It's arguably one of the most important parts of the human factors engineering effort for a project. The final report that you submit to FDA that contains all of your evidence throughout the the human factors engineering program is intended to be a effectively a story of how your product progresses throughout its its development lifetime, if you Hmm. will. So the storytelling aspect is it's kind of funny. I think of it as, you know, okay, we as human factors engineers need to help advise and help drive clear and effective user interfaces. Uh, so the design of the product. And then we have to use those same exact skills to help develop a clear and effective story to tell to the FDA. So we're using a lot of those, you know, paralleled skills in our storytelling abilities to deliver a report that helps make clear that, yes, the design has progressed, it has evolved in a way that shows that we've, we've learned, we understand our users, we've gathered feedback, and we've made really well-informed decisions that help eliminate risk or mitigate risk as much as as we can. And with FDA being a very risk-driven organization, they want that proof, right? They, They want to know, do you understand all of the context of use and have you addressed it in a way that um, you feel confident is, is actually going to solve the problems that you see. And we've actually found from a, a storytelling perspective that the most realistic stories are the ones that make FDA f- feel most confident. So we've seen clients really sort of cringe at the thought of putting things in their their report that admit to initial weaknesses in the product, right? So, okay, we designed this first iteration of the product and we went in and showed it to users and holy moly, it failed hard. And we had so many use errors in our testing and it, it was a disaster. And then when you go to put your report together at the end, mm-hmm. and naturally you found these findings, but you've addressed them, right? I mean, you've you've addressed them and realistically you've gone back and actually tested it to show that you've you have actually solved whatever problems you've observed and then it's better right you have to show that that progression and you know it creates a sense of believability to it too right. you know if i showed up tomorrow and i said today i got up and for the first time ever i ran a marathon with no training and oh man i was amazing i came in at like 2 <laughs> 30 i think tomorrow i'm going to cut another you know 20 minutes off my time it's going to sure. be amazing sure <laughs> You might kind of be a little skeptical of that, right? Right, so, right, right. Versus, oh man, I, I thought I was going to get up today and run twenty miles. I got you know like half a mile in. Man, I was winded. 
I, I it's hot. I was having trouble. Like, uh, I, I got a lot of training ahead of me. Mm-hmm. Those are two very different different stories with different levels of believability. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. No, that 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 is absolutely true. That is absolutely true. Well, uh, Alex and Kelly, thank you so much for for joining me today here on the podcast and explaining uh, so much about the the user centered design strategy for moving medical devices into the home and the pocket. Uh, I think this has been incredibly informative and given people a really good framework uh, with which to understand, you know, how you utilize the user the user centered approach and what that looks like in practice and how that works also with meeting FDA expectations. And so, uh, I, I think you guys have done an incredible job explaining this today. Thank Thanks you very so much. much. Absolutely, absolutely. And everybody, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Making Bright Ideas Work, a podcast by Sunrise Labs. We appreciate you listening very much. Of course, if you enjoyed what you heard today, make sure you go subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and uh, you'll be able to listen to previous episodes of the show as well as get the latest episode downloaded directly there on your device, and you'll stay up to date with everything going on with Sunrise Labs. As I mentioned before, we'll be back soon with more episodes, but until then, I've been your host today, Tyler Kern. Thanks for listening.